We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the chapter read, and we come at the end of this chapter midway through this uh, book of the Revelation, and from chapter 12 on we see that the tone of the book changes. We are taken into as it were, new territory to see the events that God would have his church uh, be familiar with and be prepared for. But in this chapter 11, as we have already begun to consider it, we have two things in particular brought to our attention. We've already been looking at part of the chapter And that is the triumph of the church and the triumph of Christ. They both go together, of course, and that's understandable. But we have the triumph of the saints, the triumph of the church of Christ, and then the triumph of Christ himself, and the church is bound up with that. One of the most remarkable, outstanding texts in the whole Bible is found in this chapter, verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. All those who love Christ, who lay to heart his own instructions, when the Savior taught his disciples, and of course taught us as well, how we are to pray, he told us we are to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And here we see the marvelous answer to all those prayers of all those sins down through the generations. The prayer has been answered. What a tremendous encouragement when we Look at the events previous to this. What is happening in the earth among the ungodly? And in the earlier part of this chapter, what is happening to the church and to the witnesses on behalf of Christ? The very witnesses are slaughtered. And it's as though the cause of truth appears to be defeated. But when we come to this, the kingdoms of this world, no matter who they are, where they are, what they are, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. You remember in the temptation Uh, When uh, Satan, when the Savior was led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God to be tempted. 
And Satan took the Savior and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, all these kingdoms I will give you if you do one thing, bow down and worship me. They can all be yours. The Savior, of course, refuted the temptations and the use of Scripture by Satan, and rightly so, because he knew from eternity past the Father's promise, I have set my King, my Son, and my Holy Hail Zion. And here is a cause for great rejoicing when the seventh angel sounded. There were great voices in heaven. Great voices in heaven. And what are they saying? The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our uh, Lord and his Christ. I understand I've never been in Westminster Abbey, but you will all know that's where the British monarchs are crowned and at the altar where they have to kneel and so on where they're crowned. This very text is inscribed on the altar. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord, so that every crown monarch in the United Kingdom is made aware, as you are now being crowned as the ruler of this kingdom, your kingdom belongs to Christ. Now, in this chapter, as we said, we come to the amazing sight that John records verse 19, and the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of the testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. What an amazing sight is this. John saying, the temple of God was opened in heaven. And there was seen. He could see it. He could see in his temple the ark of the testament. Now this, of course, takes our minds back, as we've done so often, back to the Old Testament, back to the tabernacle, back to the temple. And what was peculiar about the Holy of Holies, where the ark dwelt, the ark of the covenant, the ark of the testament, which of course was representing the presence and it was assuring the Israelites that God was present among them. He dwelt in the darkness, in the Holy of Holies. One man, once a year, was allowed to go within the veil into the Holy of Holies. One man representing the Israelites was able to look on the very thing that John says now everyone can see. There was seen in his temple the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testament. 
No one had seen this. No Israelite was allowed to see it. It was so sacred. It was so awesome that they could not look upon God and live or look upon the symbol of his presence where he dwelt and lived. But here is John saying, here is the most glorious sight. The temple of the Lord is open. And we can see now things that no earthly eye was ever able to look upon except the appointed high priest. So it is a fascinating chapter and all because the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. There's the triumph of Christ, but we go back to the witnesses, the witnessing of the church in the midst of uh, great hostility. And we're told, as we've looked at it a little, <coughs> verse 10, all they that they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry. The world <laughs> seems to be a very happy place. All they that dwell upon the earth are rejoicing. What's making them so happy? What's making them feel so joyful? Why are they making such merriment? They're sending gifts. It is a great, great occasion, it seems, in human society. Why? Because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth and now they're dead. They're silent. It seems now they will not bother. Their message will not trouble human society again. They are silent. But after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them. And they stood upon their feet. And the world is now amazed. The world is now astonished. They stand upon their feet as living witnesses again. Now let's go back to consider a few more matters relating to these witnesses. We have considered uh, some matters, the significance of the two. The law required uh, validation of any uh, truth or facts by two to three witnesses. And God is, or Christ is here, reminding John, reminding the seven churches in Asia through him that he does not give his law and then violate it himself. And so he is these, the symbolic two witnesses. They are witnessing for Christ. The crucified, rejected Christ. That's who they're witnessing for, the very one. That you remember the multitudes were crying out, 
Away with him. Crucify him. Away with him. We don't want him. Here are witnesses now standing up for Christ. They are speaking for Christ. They are uh, themselves identifying with Christ. And the world is not enjoying it. The ungodly, as in Psalm 2, they rage at the very idea that he should be king over them. They do not want it. They will not have him reign. They do not want his kingdom. And they rejoice when they feel confident his kingdom is now crushed. But the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. They, of course, are... Uh, mentioned this too because that is how throughout scripture God uh, uh, validates any witness. It's not just one. It's to remember whenever the woman came in the morning of the resurrection they came to the tomb of the Savior and the stone was rolled away. There were two witnesses there. They said, he is not here, he is risen. Wasn't just one witness saying, he's risen. There were two witnesses. He's risen, he is not here. And you see again and again how often two witnesses will appear. This is part of the significance of these Two witnesses, one corroborating the witness of the other, and that's the witness on the side of Christ. This agreement in the truth on the side of Christ. One saying he is God and the other agreeing. Not one saying we believe in his deity and the other saying we refute his deity. One saying we believe in his true humanity and the other saying his humanity was not real. These have been the great conflicts down through the history of the church. But they are two witnesses, one confirming the truth of Christ as the other did. But it is important that we see where they are actually witnessing. We are told that Christ says, I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy. Now we've already looked at the beast arising out of the sea and supported by Satan in opposition for the same period of time as these witnesses witness. So there's fierce opposition to this witness. But look at where they witness and where they perish, or where they appear to perish. In the verse 7, when they shall have finished or completed their testimony, the beast, 
that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. Now we would think we shouldn't really be reading this, should we? Did not Christ say, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? What has gone wrong here? Here are these witnesses of Christ. Will he not protect his own witness? Will he not sustain it? Will he not preserve it and protect it? What we read is that he made war and he overcame them. He overcame them. And it would seem then that the church is suffering a great defeat. And sometimes that's how it may appear and God's people become alarmed and they become concerned. Well, the church seems to be in defeat. It's not prospering. It's not advancing. It seems we're getting nowhere. No one pays any attention to the church's voice. No one pays any attention to what the word of God says or what God has to say in any given situation. But this is What happens, uh, he shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street. There is so little interest in the witness of the gospel. There is so little regard for the servants of God that The world just ignores their dead bodies. And we are told they shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually, so we're not talking about a literal city here. We're talking about a city spiritually, spiritualized, a city that obviously has some other meaning, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. But so that we might understand what kind of a city this is and identify this city, we are told, where also our Lord was crucified. Now, the Lord was not crucified in anything other than a literal City, the city was real. The city was material. Everyone knew it was Jerusalem. It's one of the great cities. Outside Rome, it's in many respects the greatest city where our Lord was crucified. So what are we talking about? We're talking about the city religiously. We're talking about that which represents religion, that represents supposedly the worship of God. But look at what we also read where the Lord was crucified. The great city where the Lord was crucified. But this is a spiritual city and it is called Sodom. It is a city of immorality. It is a society given over 
to immorality like Sodom and Gomorrah. We hear, well, of course, it is so offensive, not even ministers are allowed, uh, it seems, it's not politically correct to speak of Sodomites. Because that's uh, not just uh, right in our modern enlightened society. But this is the state of things. It is deteriorated religiously. The apostasy has become so great that religion is actually identified alongside sodomy and the immorality of Sodom. In addition, it is not just called Sodom, it is called Egypt. What would John think of Egypt? That's where the Israelites, the Hebrews, were brought out of bondage. They were slaves in Egypt. It was the place where they were afflicted, where they suffered. It was the place of their bondage, and God heard their cries as they were being persecuted. Egypt speaks of persecution against Israel in the Old Testament, the people of God as they were. So here is the society. When we have this reference to a city, it's a reference to society, the state of society, the state of religion, the the evidence of a great and fearful apostatizing from the truth. And we're told that this witness is taking place in the midst of this wicked society. Now, we've already noted how John was instructed, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. For it is given unto the Gentiles, uh, verse 2, is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot. Ungodliness has taken over. The world is intruded. The ungodly world with its philosophies and its ideas and its teachings and its practices has overrun. It seems it has overrun the city of God. But... John was told, you measure the altar, you measure the temple, the altar, and them that worship. We've already, we're not going back, but this was the divine protection. This was God promising, as it were, that he would preserve his church, he would preserve his truth, he would preserve a faithful witness in the midst of all this. And he does. And you can see the consistency of this witness. It is a witness on the side of Christ, on his behalf. But it is also a praying witness. You see how that these witnesses, we are told, verse 5, 
If any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth. Now, very obviously, neither Moses nor Elijah nor any other man would have fire proceeding out of his mouth to consume anyone. So it has to mean something else. You go back to the prophecy of Jeremiah, and there you will see in different occasions God encouraging Jeremiah, God saying, I put my words in your mouth, and they shall be as fire, the people shall be as stubble, and your word as my word will consume them if they reject it. And here we have the witness being sustained, God giving power to the witnessing church that it will be preserved until its witness is completed. The fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. God is watching over his church, watching over his witnesses, and any hurt that is inflicted upon his church, upon his witness, God will revenge. Make no mistake about that. They have power, verse 6, to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with their plagues as often as they will. Now you can see the connection, surely, between what is written here (coughs) in verse 6 and what is written in verse 8. The great city, which is spiritually called Sodom, the immoral city, an immoral society, When we go back to the days of Elijah, (coughs) what do we find? Ahab is on the throne. The worst of the kings that had ever sat on the throne. Married to Jezebel, who slaughtered the Lord's servants, who slaughtered the Lord's prophets and intended to take the life of Elijah. But... Elijah was given power to pray. And he was, through the power of prayer, able to shut up heaven, and again he would open it. Now we are told by the Savior, and we are told again by James, that when he prayed, the heavens were shut for what? Three and a half years. The same time period as what we have mentioned here in verses 2 and 3. Forty and two months. Or in verse 3, 1,203 score days. What are we seeing here? 
God protecting his church, vindicating his servants, and they have power to shut heaven throughout that period, even when they're suffering, when they're persecuted, when they're witnessing, they are praying. They're not trying to do God's work in their own strength, but they are given to praying. And through prayer, they have a hold on heaven and they have control over the earth. You see then the power that they have over the waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues. Where did that happen? In the days of Moses in Egypt. What's the city called? The city is called Sodom and Egypt. So God is sustaining his witness in face of all the fiercest opposition imaginable. But it results in the death of these witnesses. But also, this witness is consistent because it has to be and could not be less than a truly godly witness. It was a witness by godliness, a practical witness. You remember what Paul tells Timothy. He's reminding Timothy of the persecutions he himself had endured and the opposition as an apostle to the Gentiles. And then he says to Timothy, And all that shall live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. All that will live godly in Christ. They didn't just talk about Christ. They lived Christ. Their very lives, their godliness was a witness. Little wonder an ungodly society given over to immorality, giving over to opposition to the truth. Did they appreciate godliness in their midst? Did they appreciate holy lives being lived before them, that would no doubt antagonize them, and it very obviously did. All that will live godly, they shall suffer persecution. This is why, in part, they're persecuted. This is a witness that is consistent with practical godliness. They just weren't talking, they were living. And they are feast with all this opposition, but in the end, they have the victory. They are not defeated. There comes the time, and we see the raging power of the beast when we come to it. We shall see more of it, but raging against the church of Jesus Christ. Oh, they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them. It's very obvious that this is not just two individuals. This is a lot more because the people 
and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies. This is a representative statement. The actions and the attitudes and the spirit abroad in the world. We, when we come to the beast, the whole world is marveling. Who is like unto the beast, they're saying. And here there is a society given over to this ungodliness. But it is all over the world. You just watch today how one government follows the example of another government. Some years ago, whenever the first government legislated in favor of gay marriage, the church was astounded and shocked. Even ungodly people were shocked. People are not shocked anymore. They're just waiting to hear which country will be doing it next. Which country will follow in? Which parliament will legislate and adopt the attitudes and the spirit and legislate like all the others? And you see the abortion more and more legislated on, euthanasia more and more, Gay marriage, more and more, you see how all this spirit of immorality is spreading right throughout the earth. And more and more, there's an international opposition to the church of Jesus Christ, to the gospel of redeeming Greece. And here John is writing to the seven churches and as the Savior so often during his own ministry would say, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. And he's still speaking here in the seven, to the seven churches, the same. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And what's the Spirit saying to the churches? Dark days are going to be facing the church of Jesus Christ, who will, the, the people of God who will be faithful to the truth. Now we're told that there's great rejoicing. Who is like unto the beast, they are saying. Let's follow the beast. Let's obey the beast. Let's legislate the laws of hell into our society. Now you can imagine (coughs) how irritating it must be to have Christ's witnesses testifying against these things, exposing the sinfulness of them. You can imagine what is going to happen eventually to the Word of God. Because society is moving at such a rapid rate and these people are rising into positions of power 
into the schools, into the uh, law enforcement, into the legal system, getting themselves well placed to be able to change and alter the law. (coughs) And therefore, when they will legislate or endeavor to against hate speech, and they will legislate against uh, hate, uh, not just speech, but terminology and attitudes, what are they going to do when they come to the Bible? They're going to say it's full of hate speech. I understand that even those who are teaching religion in the schools are not allowed to read the whole Bible. They're not allowed to read portions of it. It's not politically correct. And you can see that eventually the Bible could become a a banned book as it was before or during the times of the Reformation. The Church of Christ really needs a good shake-up. It really needs to waken up to what is taking place in our society internationally. Now then, the rejoicing is short-lived. They're silent. We won't hear about, we won't be annoyed hearing about a crucified Christ anymore. We won't be bothered with the myth of his resurrection anymore. We won't be troubled by anyone coming to the courts or into the places where we legislate expecting worship and expecting prayer before we commence our deliberations. We won't be bothered with that. The voice will be out of the schools. The voice will be out of our parliaments. The witness will be silenced. What a glorious society. Peace at last. Don't you hear constantly? Don't you listen to religion? All the wars that ever been that have ever been fought, what caused them? Religion. Now would you hear constantly? I remember among books picking up this book, second-hand books, and there was an old fellow, I think he was from Switzerland or somewhere, and he happened to look over my shoulder to see, oh, but nothing to do with that. Religion, what nothing to do with it. All the wars in the world were fought over religion. You can imagine the great merriment. We've got a wonderful, peaceable society now. The beast reigns. And everybody does what pleases themselves. And then, lo and behold, the witnesses awake. And they stir to life, as you have it there in the prophecy of Ezekiel in the chapter 37. Again, you see connection between events recorded in the Old Testament prophecies pointing to the future 
And then you see the mighty power of God. Whenever in Ezekiel 37, the hand of the Lord leads Ezekiel in this vision to this valley full of dead men's bones. He caused me, verse 2 of Ezekiel 37, to pass by them round about. Have a real good look at them. And behold, there were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. They were bleached. They've been there for long enough. They're bleached. He said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? Just imagine. Imagine society looking at the church finished. Look at all the doors that are closed. It's interesting. In Aberdeen, right outside our meeting place in Aberdeen, right on the other side of the street where we, uh, our people worship in Aberdeen, is part of the old Free Church College. It is now a high-class restaurant. I'm not even going to mention the name of it. It is blasphemous. And you think, what was taking place there a couple of centuries ago? Men being trained to witness on behalf of the Reformed faith. And now it's deserted and closed and this is repeated again and again and again throughout the United Kingdom and no doubt Australia and many other places. And the ungodly, they may look and say, well, that's unfinished. And some of the Lord's people begin to think that way. And God says, can these bones live? Can I raise the cause up? Can I build Zion? Can I revive my work in the midst of the years? Can these bones live? What did the prophets say? O Lord God, thou knowest. Anyway, the long and the short of it is that in the midst of despair and utter death, the prophet is told, you preach to those dead bones. I tell you, that would take some faith to stand up and declare God's word to a valley full of dead and bleached bones. But that's what the prophet is told to do. And there was a stirring in that valley. That must have been quite an incentive and quite an encouragement. Carry on. Ezekiel, something's happening. Carry on. Keep prophesying. And then there was a shaking. Bones came together Sinews, they appear to be lifelike, but there's still no life. There was no breath in them. 
Then said he unto me, verse 9, prophecy unto the wind. Prophecy, son of man. And say to the wind, thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. That's what makes the difference. God says these bones have to live. This valley has to become a valley of life. It's been a valley of death. Why wouldn't that be something? It's the Clarence Valley, and it's pretty full of dead and dry bones, I can see. But wouldn't it be something if God said, well, prophesy anyway to the dead bones in the Clarence Valley and see what happens? And what happens... As I prophesied, as he commanded, (coughs) the breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceeding great army. Only God could do that. Wasn't in the power of Ezekiel to do it. Wasn't in the power of his preaching to do it. The power belonged to God and he purposed to do it. But he expected Ezekiel to use the means and to be the means. We cannot expect God's blessing if we despise God's ordained means. And here we see these witnesses. The cause is as low as that. It's dead. It seems it's finished. And then, lo and behold, these witnesses stand again on their feet. You remember whenever Jesus was going in John 11 to the grave of Lazarus. And what did his sister say to the Savior when he went and told them to roll the, open the grave? Open the sepulcher. Lord, behold, he stinketh. Don't you realize it's a way too late now? He's been dead four days. Behold, he stinketh. It's too late. Would have been too late one minute after he died anyway. How the human mind How human reasoning puts limits on the power of God. Can these bones live? Can these witnesses live? God says yes. The world says no, but God says yes. And they're brought to life. And then great fear fell upon them which saw them. Great fear. Why? Because they were witnesses to the mighty power of God. God reviving his cause. God sustaining his cause. God watching over his witnesses. And they triumph in the end because we're told they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies beheld them and they couldn't do a thing about it. God's 
triumph for the church. That is why, however the dark the day may be, it is our duty to remain faithfully proclaiming the gospel and uh, witnessing on the side of Christ. The church cannot retreat. It dare not. It has always got, no matter how much opposition, and they were faced with it here, they kept the witness up, and in the end, what a glorious statement is this, the kingdom's of this world. They've been conquered. They've been conquered by the gospel. They have been won for Christ. He has triumphed over them. I suppose some of you undoubtedly would have some knowledge, perhaps limited knowledge, of the civil war in America and the great terrible slaughter the Battle of Gettysburg, greatest slaughter in American history. That battle began on the 1st of July, 1863. And there was a young lieutenant colonel leading 420 volunteers from the Iron Brigade, they were called, they were volunteers from the Wisconsin, 6th Wisconsin Regiment. And they came into confrontation. They were faced with Confederate troops, and they were outnumbered two to one. But one thing was said of that young colonel. His name was Rufus Dawes. The one thing they said about him is this. He doesn't understand retreat. He doesn't know what retreat means. And even though they were outnumbered, he fought on. They gained the victory in the end. But one of the amazing things to me is this. There was, they didn't have all the modern technology then that they have today. And in order to over see his troops and know where his soldiers were, they depended on one thing. And that was the regimental colors, the, the, the flag of the regiment. Amidst all the noise of battle and the smoke that would make men uh, unconscious of where their uh, comrades were. They depended, they looked for that flag. And it is said that in a matter of minutes, he lost ten men just in a matter of minutes who were determined to keep that banner and keep it flying and floating for the sake of the rest of the troops. The man who carried the colors of course, in, in all times, became the target of the enemy. They knew, even for him. And it is said, as one man fell, 
another immediately rushed in to grab the colors to keep them flying so that Dawes would know where his men were and he would be able to command them in the furore of battle. Men rushed forward. They saw the need. They rushed forward as volunteers. They put their own life on the line in order to see victory. The psalmist tells us, and of course it's part, in a sense, the motto of our own church, that was given us a banner to be displayed because of the truth. And you and I, however dark the day is, it is our business to keep the banner of divine truth aloft. And it would be a glorious day if we would see men and women rallying to the banner of Reformed truth and Reformed practice. God hasn't given us a banner to hide, to be proud of. You can go into military museums, and there you'll see the ancient colors of the regiments and all the victories they've won or inscribed or embroidered, all the honors of that regiment are recorded. We have the truth of God to bear witness to, and we ought not to faint in the day of battle. But here, you see how the church survives the onslaught, protected and kept. And then, we read in verse 14 of chapter 11, the second woe is past. And behold, the third woe cometh quickly, and the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, and this is what they're saying. The kingdoms of this world. Notice when we go down to verse 18. What Christ has won. And the nations were angry. And thy wrath is come. And the time of the dead. That they should be judged. And that they, thou shouldest give reward. Unto thy servants the prophets. Now you will immediately see. That here as we come to the end of this chapter. We're coming. As it were to the end of time. Now we shall retrace the time again, looking at other aspects of what happens during the time. Very interesting, you know. You ask people, what do you believe about the book of the Revelation? What's your view on the book of the Revelation? Now people scratch their head and, well, uh, I'm not really sure. I think I'm... I'm a premillennialist. And someone says, well, I think I'm a postmillennialist. And someone else says, I'm an amillennialist. All right. And where did you get that from? 
Oh, well, (laughs) that's what I believe is the view of Revelation. There's only one chapter in the book where it mentions the millennium. Records it, I think it's seven times, six times, seven times, but only once there. And people say, I'm pre-millennial. I'm post-millennial. I'm amillennial. Well, you cannot possibly say you're anything millennial unless you've read the book. People get the idea into their heads. Well, if I'm going to understand the book of the Revelation, I'll have to start somewhere. I'll have to have some kind of a system, some kind of a theological system of interpretation so that I know where I'm going. And so, well, I'm a premillennialist. So, when I come to the book of the Revelation, that's how I'll understand it. Someone says I'm post-millennial. So when I come to the book of the Revelation, that's how I'll understand it. You see, when someone tells you they are pre or post or a, what does that tell you? That tells you of their conclusion. Doesn't tell you of how they came to it. That's just their conclusion. And that's one of the great mistakes that many make when they come to this book. They come not to have it interpreted so that they can come to a settled conclusion. But they come to the book already with a conclusion. Wherever they got it, they come to it. And that's how I'm going to understand the book. It is interesting. One of the professor, uh, he's known as Ian Paul, and uh, Wiley lamented that the book of the Revelation, he said, is the most statistics seem to indicate it's the most neglected book in the pulpit. It is the most neglected, least expounded book in the Bible, according to many of the statistics. It's avoided because apparently it's difficult And it is ignored because people say there's too much symbolism that I can't understand, and so on. The professor says, it is the most remarkable book in human history. He actually advocated that every university should have the book of Revelation on its course for students studying world literature. And he said, 
with his knowledge of so much literature that there is no piece of literature anywhere in the world that is so unique for any enumerates many reasons as the Bible that you and I possess. He said there simply is no piece of literature anywhere in the world that can actually compare with the book of the Revelation. It is unique, he says, amongst all the literature and writings of the world. Little wonder then there is a blessing promised to them that read it, and of course they meditate upon it. But here we come to this great event where Christ reigns. The temple is opened and God's covenant has been fulfilled. His church have triumphed and Christ has triumphed. The nations were angry, but he still triumphed. The nations hate him, but he still triumphs. But with his triumph, with his victory, comes something else that should solemnize everyone who's out of Christ. The nations were angry and thy wrath is come. You go back to the first chapter of Revelation and John says he's his brother in tribulation and in the patience, the kingdom and patience of our Lord Jesus Christ. God has been patient. He's watched his church persecuted. Christ has watched his people being opposed and persecuted, but he has conquered the nations, and they are angry, and yet the day of reckoning has come, the time of the dead. The time of the dead has come. The graves are to be opened. The great resurrection will take place. And what they are resurrected that they should be judged and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to thy saints. Yes, they were hated. Yes, they were persecuted. But the reward comes in the end. And the time of the dead, still spiritually dead, dead without Christ, dead in their sins, the day of judgment has come. When we come later to the end of the book, the books are opened. And every man shall be judged out of the things that are written there and there will be no mistakes there. No one will come to God in that day and say, that's a mistake, that better be erased. No one will stand before God and say, I contest what is written there. That won't happen. We shall be judged out of the things that are written. They are written. They're already written. 
what my dear friend has written against you and me. What is written against you that you will have no excuse for on that day the victory and triumph of Christ in his church will bring solemn, solemn events for those who persecuted his church, for those who denied Christ, for those who rejected Christ. The day of judgment is sure coming, and may we be ready for it, but we shall leave it there. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, we rejoice that thou art the living God, the God of eternity and time, the God who ever much the nations may be angry and rage, will have the victory in the end. Encourage thy people to be praying, never to give up praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. For thou art assuring us as much as John himself that Christ Jesus shall reign and he shall reign over the nations of the earth. They shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Bless thy truth to his pardon, his acceptance. For the Redeemer's sake, amen.